can open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 27 this morning. We're looking at the tabernacle, tabernacle from the inside out. And this morning we are leaving the tent and moving into the courtyard as part of the tabernacle. And um, if you were to walk along the courtyard and you look into the entrance of the courtyard, which we learned uh, last week, you'd be looking from east to west. The first thing you would see would be the bronze altar. Uh, this altar, seven and a half foot square altar uh, there um, inside the, the court. So as with all the other furnishings, the Lord provides specific instructions on how this altar was to be made. And so we're going to read that this morning, first eight verses of Exodus 27. It says, You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes, and shovels, and basins, and forks, and fire pans. You shall make all utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze. And on the net, you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar, so that the net extends halfway down the altar. You shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings, so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards. As it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. So this is the instruction given to Moses for uh, these shares with the craftsmen. And now to chapter 38, we're going to read of the construction of this altar. So well, why do we need to read both passages? We're reading the same thing. Well, it shows us that the people actually followed the Lord's instruction. Uh, they did what was told according, uh, exactly according to the Word of God. So chapter 38, verse 1. He, this is Basileel, one of the craftsmen the Lord appoints, he made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length, and five cubits its breadth. It was square, and three cubits was its height. He made horns for it on its four corners. Its horns were of one piece with it, and he overlaid it with bronze. And he made all the utensils of the altar, the pots, the shovels, the basins, the forks, and the fire pans. He made all its utensils of bronze. And he made for the altar a grating and network of bronze under its ledge, extending halfway down. He cast four rings in the four corners of the bronze grating as holders for the poles. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. And he put the poles through the rings on the sides of the altar to carry it with them. He made it hollow with boards. This is God's word to his people long ago, his word to us today. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word to us, this lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We pray, Lord, that you would work this word now into our hearts and our minds, that you would help us. And understanding and applying this word. Sometimes it can be so hard for us to think how the details of this piece of furniture so long ago would be applicable to us. So we ask your help, Lord. You speak faithfully through your servant now. That we would grow in our love for the Lord Jesus. Our true and faithful substitute. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You were to ask anyone that you came across, anyone you come across, family, friends, co-workers, maybe another student, 
how they would describe God, the attributes that they would give to God, what do you think they would say? Recognizing initial response may be different depending on someone's upbringing or certain experiences they've had. But most people, if they're willing to acknowledge the reality in which we live, that God exists, they would describe Him using you know, a positive attribute. They would say something positive. This, this God is kind. This God is love. Um, you know, if it's the man upstairs, Santa Claus in the sky idea, then God is giving. Uh, and He's more than willing to overlook a lot of things to kind of keep us on the nice list and receiving His gifts. God is love, and if He exists, He's going to extend that love and care to us. That's the understanding of, of many, including within the church, And yet, so often our ideas of God are shaped by our preferences, our sentiment, over and above the eternal Word of God. If God's like us, if He's made in our image, then He'll likely have attributes that we prefer. We like people who are kind and loving people. We want to be loved. So God is love. This makes sense to us. The Bible tells us that God is love. We can only love because He has loved us so extravagantly. But that's usually where, you know, where it stops, where the conversation ends. And so the Bible tells us that God is unchanging, uh, that His character, who He is in the Old Testament, is the same as who He is in the New Testament. Look at Malachi chapter 3 or Hebrews chapter 13 if you'd like some references But this means that God always has been and always will be love. He always has been, He always will be a God of mercy and compassion. He always has been, He always will be just. And that's the one we grade against. The justice of a holy God that we tend to either forget if we've ever even been told about it or need to think about it. We all like justice, don't we? We want justice. Uh, we want the bad, the bad boys and the bad girls to, you know, to face the consequences of what justice demands. Until that justice you know, sort of turns the lens and looks right at us, then we're not so sure. Then we would, we would much prefer mercy when that happens. A God of mercy, not a God of justice. See, the the prevailing attitude around us is that we're not accountable for our actions. That there's really no no need to confess our failings or our sins against each other. We're we're just not not accountable. There's always someone else's fault. We'll hold others accountable, but not ourselves. So what do we typically do when that happens? Well, we put a smile on our face. We hope it goes away. Or whatever it is that we tend to medicate to. Work, TV, drink, whatever. Um, and hope it just covers the pain. So then we come to the largest piece of furniture 
in this area of the tabernacle. The, the outdoor metal of choice we'll find is bronze. It's a little farther away from the very presence of God in the tent. So it's not gold, it's, it's bronze that is used in this case. And this bronze altar is really going to challenge the perception of who God is. What is necessary to know Him and to commune with Him and to worship Him. This altar, it's also known as the, the altar of burnt offering, which is in, in chapter 38 there. It's going to show the people, it's going to show us at least three needs. Needs of the people in the wilderness, needs that we have today in our relationship to God. There's a need for satisfaction, a need for confession, and a need for substitution. So we'll consider uh, how the altar shows us these needs and make application uh, from that. Maybe you've dusted off the grill for the summer months. Maybe you never put the grill away. Um, if I had been thinking a little further ahead, maybe I would have suggested we pull the grills out of the back here and put some meat on for our fellowship lunch. But it would fit well as we look at this bronze altar and what the cooks, the priests, are, are doing um, with this altar. Um, a wooden box made of bronze. It's got grating, vertical grating along the, the side and then that horizontal uh, grate for a cooking surface, um, which would have also helped with the sides with ventilation for the fire that's underneath there. And I don't want to spend a lot of time or try to dig up meaning for the utensils that are used. They were utensils for the cooks. They serve a very practical, functional uh, purpose. Um, ash shovels, pots are used to collect the fat that would often drip from the grate and, and mix in with the ash. Uh, bronze basins to collect the blood of the sacrifices alongside this altar. So everything there was everything was available um, for placing this sacrifice over the fire. But it's the fire that I want to focus on. The fire that we need to consider for a moment. When the people were looking at the tabernacle toward the courtyard, which meant the very center of the camp around Sinai in this case, they would see the smoke rising from this bronze altar. If they move closer and they move towards that entrance, the first thing they would see would be the fire smoldering under this grill. It didn't matter when they looked because this fire was always burning. Giving instruction about different sacrifices, uh, Moses relays this. Um, this is from Leviticus 6. It says, The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it, and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. So there's another responsibility of the priest, maybe one that we don't think about as often, in continuing to feed the fire for this burnt offering. If we don't feed a fire with oxygen or things to burn, it's going to go out. It, it needs to be satisfied continually. Um, continual offering and worship to the Lord. So the God of perfect holiness and purity and justice, He must punish sin. He must be satisfied. If He doesn't do this, you know, if He could somehow just sort of gloss over or ignore uh, the offenses against him, every, the offense of every little sin, then he would stop being God. 
He would no longer be worthy of our admiration, of our worship. If the God of all perfection and beauty and goodness and power and justice, if he doesn't require absolute justice, then evil ultimately wins. Um, and we're left with, with very little hope. Listen to how the, the Heidelberg Catechism, we read a, a question and answer earlier. And here's another question. It says, but is not God also merciful? And the response of God is indeed merciful, but he's likewise just. His justice therefore requires that sin which is committed against the most high majesty of God be punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment, both of body and soul. So that, that may sound harsh on the surface. True justice often does. But it's what we need. It's what our hearts actually want. We need a God who misses nothing. Who not only can, but He will right all wrongs. Evil will not prevail. No darkness will remain before the radiance of His glory. His perfect justice. So the fire must be fed. The justice of God must be satisfied. If we turn to Hebrews 10, the New Testament will say our God is a consuming fire. Now just think for a moment about how many sacrifices were placed on this grill. That altar over the years in the life of the people. And Leviticus tells us about burnt offerings and guilt offerings, sin offerings, food offerings. I mean, you're talking for millions of people for years and years and years. The people would continue to sin, and so there were always more sacrifices that needed to be made. More trips back to the fire. Just think of how messy this would have been, how, how bloody this process is. And I don't think it would have taken the people long to figure out what the author of Hebrews actually confirms. This is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. No creature can fully satisfy God's wrath against sin for human beings. For the sacrifice on the altar, they did something. They satisfied God's wrath temporarily, but only temporarily. So do we hear the need? We hear the need for a perfect one-time sacrifice. Satisfaction is still required for sinful human beings. We're to be at peace, escape the everlasting punishment of both body and soul. Only a sacrifice that God provides could be sufficient. So the fire on the altar really stresses God's desire that the people come to Him with a sacrifice. I mean, this was central, a central place to gather to sacrifice, eat portions that were designated in fellowship with the Lord. He loves the gathering of His people. Those are the corporate worship. He's available to them, ready to receive their, their honor and their worship. Just as He's ready to receive our worship and sacrifice to Him. So if we look a little closer at the process of, of offering sacrifices specifically a burnt offering or sin offering, the person who was making the offering would come with the animal. They would lay their hands on the animal before it was killed. Uh, it's an important step in identifying with the animal, which I'll talk about more in a second. But laying out of hands was associated with prayer and praying. Before the animal is offered, there's a, 
a prayer of confession that's offered. Uh, it could be by the individual, it may be by the priest or another leader uh, on behalf of the people. Here's what it says in Leviticus 16, it helps us understand this. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. So simply dropping the animal off wasn't enough. It required confession, some actual heart engagement along with the, you know, the hands and feet here. To offer a sacrifice without prayer, without a heart of repentance, would have been lifeless. It's true for the church today. It's necessary for anyone to be welcomed by God, to worship with an acceptable sacrifice. You think, think what is such an important part of our worship together. Why did the people want to gather in this courtyard? Because the altar, the fire burning continually was there. It was there so that they could confess and receive forgiveness. The time we spend in confession, it's not just important, it's necessary as we go before the Lord. We hear Peter speaking to the crowds in Acts chapter 3. It says, Repent therefore and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The Apostle Paul understands this need. Uh, Acts 17. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. Repenting of sin. This is done when, when the first sacrifice is brought, when we first come to the Lord in faith, but it doesn't end there. Think of what John says in his first letter. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, okay, that, that's an, an active present verb, not past. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So the Christian should be in a continual posture of repentance. Think of the, the Puritan Thomas Watson. I wrote a little book. Do I have it here? Yeah, I do. Um, a little book called The Doctrine of Repentance. Um, certainly I could not recommend a better resource on the, the subject if you're interested. Um, but he notes that our repentance, our turning away from sin back towards the ways of God, it should be sincere, it should be voluntary, it should be specific. Um, That's where I think many of us, including myself, uh, this is where we could use some summer school in repentance. Um, we're pretty good at what I'll call the, the Costco confession. Except we don't have Costco around here, so Sam, but it doesn't have the ring as Sam's Club. Costco confession is wholesale confession. Lord, forgive us of all of our many sins. You know, this is an honest confession. Okay, God knows the details of our many sins. And there is forgiveness. But do we really know ourselves so that we can actually name our sin? And the short answer is no, most of the time. Uh, sin, sin blinds us, so we don't know how or what to confess. 
The people offer sacrifices for this too. They would offer sacrifices for unknown sins. But many times we do know how we've sinned. If, if we're willing to look. If we're willing to go where the, the Spirit may be moving our conscience. This is important for, for healing, returning, and rest. Okay, when you're going to put the band-aid on or the ointment on the injury, you need to know exactly where, where to put that. And I think this starts uh, to really draw out the difference between repentance and confession. You know, they're on the same road, but repentance you know, goes a little further than confession. Now, repentance is a confession that's lived out. Confession applied. And repentance, we're always dying to ourselves, living unto God. Again, Heidelberg Catechism says this really well in a question and answer. You know, what is the dying of the old man? A heartfelt sorrow for sin causing us to hate and turn from it more and more. The next question, what is the making alive of the new man? A heartfelt joy in God through Christ, causing us to take delight in living according to the will of God in all good works. So do you hate your sin? Do you hate it? Is there a shame when you have sin? I mean, that, that's actually a good sign. It shows that you haven't doused the work of the Holy Spirit. You haven't grown too callous and hard to sin. It's, it's when we're okay with it. We're okay with our sin. We're okay with the sins in our brothers and sisters. That's when we're in the greatest danger. Thomas Watson, again, makes a good point here. He says, a hard heart is a receptacle for Satan. It's not falling into water that drowns, but lying in it. It's not falling into sin that damns, but lying in it without repentance. Hardness of heart results at last in the conscience being seared. Men have silenced their consciences and God has seared them. So confession and repentance, it opens the door for forgiveness. So we're willing to acknowledge the depths of our sin, to repent that only makes the sacrifice of Christ that much sweeter. It grows our affection, endears us to Christ as a substitute. And that's what we see finally here. So there's a need to make satisfaction for our sin, a need to confess those sins before the Lord, and a substitute that is offered in our place. So when the worshiper would bring that animal to the altar, first of all, it comes as a very real cost. How we would consider a sacrifice, how we understand that term in modern language, it was a sacrifice for them. It was part of their livelihood. Then they lay hands on the animal, confess the animal is uh, slaughtered. But it shows their identification with that creature. That it is dying as a substitute for the worshiper. Leviticus 17 tells us how this worked. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The blood, the life of the animal for the life of the sinner. To be forgiven, to be reconciled with God required this substitute. The altar was a place where that happened. This is something the Lord has always required. It's always required a, an atonement for sin. If we believe Hebrews 9.22 is true, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
then a blood sacrifice is required for you, for me. That's what we need, and that's what God has given us in His Son. In our sin, we're really just substituting ourselves for God. I think I may have mentioned this before. Uh, you know, hear yourself saying, yeah, I'll put some words in your mouth. I want control. I decide what is best. I'll do what I want because I'm the God I report to. That's what we're doing in our sins. Substituting ourselves for God. But in the atonement for our salvation, God has substituted Himself for us. So no animal, no animal could remove a very real personal guilt that human beings have incurred as image bearers of God. We cannot offer enough sacrifices. We cannot pay for them. There is no good enough. There is no, I'll do better. There is no earn this, if you've watched Saving Private Ryan all the way through to the end. We need a perfect image bearer to die in our place. So God must provide the substitute. He has to. It's His altar and His sacrifice for us. So Hebrews 9, 11-14, it should be the sweetest song ever in the ears of man. Just soak in this a moment as I read this. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And, and there lies the response, right? Not to carry the shame and the hopelessness of our sin, but to serve the living God who has placed that shame and guilt upon His altar. So no one could approach God's tent without a sacrifice. The very center of worship for the Israelites, at the very center of our worship as a church. Puritan pastor, theologian John Owen, to the altar which we now have is Christ alone and His sacrifice. For He was the priest, altar, and sacrifice all in Himself. Now, something I'll mention here as, as we close this. You know, we're not told in these instructions why the horns were, were made on the altar. But we do know that you know, horns, we think of wild animals with horns, and they were that symbol of, of power and majesty and strength. Uh, we read of the horn of salvation in the Old Testament. Uh, the imagery of the horns in the New Testament and Revelation, that the priests would likely take hold of the, orn, of the horns on that altar as they were um, praying. Uh, they would spread the blood of sacrifices on the horns of the altar. There are a couple of examples in the Old Testament 
for someone either in, in distress, either under murder charges or um, charges of, of sedition, they would run and take hold of the horns of the altar. So we, so we know, we see it as this place of atonement, this place of forgiveness, this, this place of refuge for the people. So brothers and sisters, here's what I want to leave you with as you consider this altar in the tabernacle. Your times of trouble, times of distress, times of uncertainty, confusion, frailty, times of rebellion, run to the altar and take hold of Christ. The sacrifice has been made. He is our substitute. He's the the only refuge before an unchanging God of love and mercy and justice. Read later in Hebrews, as it, as it is, He has appeared once for all, the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Let's run to the altar. Let's go to Lord in prayer now. Lord, we do thank You for Your altar, the sacrifice of Christ for us. Lord Jesus, You are that perfect substitute in Your living and in Your dying You have done this for us. And united to You by faith, we give You praise and thanks. Lord, may it move us to obedience. May we put to death the deeds of the flesh and live as new men, women, and children life in Christ. To live unto God because our substitute is has been given. We thank you for this gift. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.